Good morning, New Life. My name is Greg Howe. I serve here on the preaching team at New Life, and I work primarily with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a ministry on college and university campuses. It's good to be here, and it's good to be with you all. And thank you for braving the heat, knowing that it will be hotter after, when you leave than when you came. Um, but thankfully, you're not in third service. Um, <clears throat> that is, we're in the middle of a series on Proverbs. And um, Proverbs is designed to help us to make wise choices. To make choices, as Rich pointed out when the series began, conscious of the fact that God is in control, making good long-term choices, as Pete preached on about being prudent, learning to listen to one another and speak truth to one another, learning to make difficult choices, as we heard last week. And all of those are great things, um, because they focus on how do you make a choice. I want to look today at how the context you're in shapes the choices that you make and what it looks like to be wise in specific contexts and times. As we were just singing that last song, I have to believe, right, in all the hard times and all the good times, the people that come to mind for me um, are some of my friends. Um, I think of my friend Gwyneth, who is recovering from um, cancer surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy. She's been admitted to a clinical trial that could significantly extend her life. And um, just last week, they tested her uh, for white blood cell count, and it was too low to continue the trial. And so she's waiting, hoping her white blood cell count will rise again so she can enter the trial, and on Wednesday, they're going to test her again. And for her, it feels like her long-term health and life are in the balance. How does she make a wise choice? I think of my friend, um, Brian. Brian's gay. He's a Christian and is choosing to be celibate out of um, obedience to what Scripture is teaching him. But I know he struggles with intense loneliness and a deep sense of isolation. He's wondering, where is he going to find long-term, decades-long-term, friendship and community that will be family to him. How does he make a good choice, a wise choice in a situation like that? I think of my friend Brad. He's black, um, has a young child, and is wondering, how can you and should you even raise up a black son in a culture like this? What are the implications and risks and costs for him? How do you make a good choice? When, for all of these friends, right, it's not just that you're worried, but your soul is tired. It's not just that your soul is tired, but you emotionally feel spent. Physically, you're drained by this. I think of my friend Christy, who's been waiting. She's been married 12 years, and she wonders if she can last the next 40. Because every day is just that hard. And when you think about people who are just waiting and grieving and exhausted, it's sometimes hard to go into the Proverbs because the Proverbs are filled with these self-assured statements, right, that seem so self-true and so robustly confident. Raise up a child in the way, that, right, of, the way of the Lord, and he will never depart that path. And it sounds so sure and so true, and every parent in the room knows that you can raise up a child as well and as faithfully as you can, 
And at some point, they walk out, right? Commit your paths unto the Lord, and he will um, fulfill them. And you just think, I have, and it hasn't always worked out that way. How do you engage life with wisdom when life can be so exhausting, so draining, so painful? That's why I'm grateful for the Proverbs that we're looking at today. Uh, Proverbs 30, verses 1 through 9. I love them because they begin this way. The sayings of Agur, the son of Jekyll, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ithiel. I am weary, God. I am weary, God, but I will prevail. I love the fact that he doesn't begin with a sense of joy and exuberance and hope and faith. He just says, I'm exhausted. But I'm going to survive. And the next few proverbs outline a path for us to live wisely and well when you're exhausted, when you have nothing left, and you have to face the future. Um, and what I love about Agur's proverbs is they begin with, I think, the some of the three most powerful words in the English language. If you think about the sentences that you can construct with three words, the words that Agur begins with right after this are the third most powerful, right? The first and most powerful three words in the English language, I think, are these, right? I love you. Because once you hear that, once you've said that, literally you can feel reality beginning to change around you, right? I love you is, are the three most powerful words, I think, in the English language. Three, the, the sentence that has the most powerful three words. I think the next most powerful three words are these. Please forgive me. And most of us know, right, those usually closely follow I love you because I love you requires at some point the please forgive me. Agur begins with these three words, I think. I don't know. Now, they don't sound like powerful words, but I'm convinced saying you don't know could be some of the most powerful and important words you can ever say because um, until you know that you don't know, you will never pursue wisdom, nor will you be wise. Right? Now, it's a little troubling that Agur begins this way. I don't know. And listen to the scope of what Agur says he does not know, Right? Surely I'm only a brute, not a man. I don't even have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Who's gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? If surely you know. Now, some of you might be a little disturbed. Um... We're studying Proverbs. He says he hasn't studied wisdom. Why are we studying him? And worse yet, I have not attained knowledge of the Holy One. What's he doing in the Bible? It's an odd confession, but the key to wisdom, I think, is to admit when you don't know and what you don't know. Because when you start acknowledging that you don't know, you're on your path to the wisdom of dependence. You're on your way to the path of the wisdom of being dependent because um, when you don't know and you know that you don't know, 
you're able to change and take action. As a leader, one of the things I do most frequently with people I'm consulting with, whether employees or other people on InterVarsity's cabinet, is helping them think through this chart. It looks at um, what do you actually know uh, and what, uh, how aware are you of it, right? So if you're um, in the upper left-hand quadrant, these are the known knowns. These are the things that you know you know. You know you know how to put on clothes. You know how to do the day job that you have mostly, right? These are the things that you're confident you know. There are also um, known unknowns when you encounter a problem, right, or a crisis. Um, there are things that, like, I need to call... Like for me, if it involves any repair work, I need to call somebody to explain what's going on because as soon as something breaks down at the house, I'm incompetent. I don't know anything, but I know I don't know, so I can ask for help. You also have um, the unknown knowns. These are things where um, you actually have a competency that you don't know yet, but if we were to have a conversation, you would discover you had a skill. Right, and this happens to us all the time. I didn't know I was good at that. Or somebody asks you a question, all of a sudden you're like, you pop out something wise, and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that was in me. Yeah, that's true. The danger point, the part where we really need help, are the unknown knowns over there in the bottom right-hand corner. These are the times that you don't know that you don't know something, and it's going to get you in trouble, right? That's the source of real risk. And all of us have experienced that, right? Because you've watched a friend do something that you just go, whoa, 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 because you knew something and they didn't know that they didn't know something, and they walked right into it, right? We've all seen that happen before. Until you know, can move the unknown knowns over to the known unknowns, nobody can take action. You're vulnerable, and you're at risk, right? And this is true everywhere. It's not just um, in, true in terms of this diagram, right? It's true in, um, sorry, every area of life. Um, think about how you learn. So, um, I was practicing piano with one of my daughters the other day, and um, she did something wrong, and I pointed it out, and then she just lost it. Like, just, ah, you know, flew, threw herself on the keyboard, pouted, and I'm like, what's wrong? Now, I agree, better pedagogy, you catch them doing something right and affirm it, but at some point, you have to tell them what's going wrong. And, she, and her response was, it's so humiliating and embarrassing when you catch me doing something wrong. But what I pointed out to her is, you will never get better until you can press through the shame of your ignorance <laughs> and get the help you need. Right? Because if I don't tell you what you're doing wrong, you will replicate it and repeat it and burn it into your fingers so you will be unable to stop yourselves. Teachers know this is true all the time. You praise children for their good behavior, right, to encourage it, but at some point you have to say, you don't know how to spell. Let me help you with that. Right? At some point, you have to be vulnerable in your ignorance in order to get better. This is true not just in learning, it's true in spiritual formation too, isn't it? What does it take for us to grow in Christ-likeness so that we are formed into Christ-likeness for the sake of others? It requires us to move from our Sunday school knowledge of who Jesus is into the uncharted territory where those answers aren't enough, and you have to decide, is it enough to know about him, or am I going to actually choose to know him? Right? Am I going to think I can trust him, or am I actually going to take a step of faith? You're going to have to be vulnerable in that intervening space to say, the only way to grow is to go past what I already know into the fuller, deeper riches of who he actually is. This is true in our relationships too, isn't it? 
For true emotional health, for true relational health, it requires that we look at the person eating dinner across the table from us, the coworker in the cube next to us, or the person laying in bed um, next to us, and acknowledge at some point that person's a complete mystery to me. I don't understand them. I can't figure them out, right? Because it's at that point, at that point when you go, I don't think I know them nearly as well as I think I do, that you open up the channel for communication and you begin to ask questions like, what's really going on in your heart? It's using the skills that we teach in emotionally healthy relational skills, right? You, you actually ask and uncover people's expectations rather than mind reading. You walk up the ladder of integrity rather than letting things fester. It requires you to acknowledge, I don't know what's going on in your heart, mind, or soul. Would you tell me? And all of these horrifying, humiliating, embarrassing experiences, right? These vulnerabilities point out our need to acknowledge what is unknown because it, what happens when you realize you don't know is that finally you look out from outside your own head, heart, and soul, and you begin to look out. And you look at the other person. You look for um, books and teachers and experiences to teach you where you don't know something in education. You look and engage in silence to listen to God and hear his voice in scripture so that your spirit begins to grow. Um, you clarify the expectations and climb the ladder of integrity in relationships. And all of those, right, force you into relationship. And what Alger says is ultimately... When I'm weary, but I want to prevail, and I know my own ignorance, what am I going to turn to? And in the end, he asked this question. Who's done all these things? Who's measured the waves? Who knows the winds? Who started the, bound, um, the, the, um, the ends of the earth? He goes, what's his name and the name of his son? Surely you know. And if you know the Bible, all of a sudden you go, didn't God ask that question of Job when Job was questioning? Where were you when I created the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky? And where were you when I released the rains? Job, tell me if you know. Who does know, Job? It's me, right? You begin to, you hear it in the Psalms repeated over and over. Ultimately, Agur seems to be saying, when you're weary, if you want to pursue the path of wisdom, give yourself to the one who's actually in control of the universe, because it ain't you. When we don't know what's going to happen, when we're weary and exhausted, what's important to know is that even though we don't know, God knows. When we don't know what's going to happen to us, God knows. When we don't know where we're going, God knows. When we don't know what's going to happen next, who we're going to become or where our children are going to end up, God knows. And grounding ourselves in the reality of who God is can change your experiences. Some of you might know the name Elizabeth Elliot. She was a pretty famous missionary and speaker, particularly in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Um, most of us know her from um, her experiences in the 1950s when she and her husband, Jim Elliot, uh, were missionaries in Latin America. And Jim Elliot was a number was among a number of missionaries who were killed by the indigenous people as they were trying to bring the gospel there. And she heard about it as she's holding, I think, her one-and-a-half-year-old or one-year-old child. Um, she emotionally survived the experience, ended up continuing to minister that community, bringing the gospel there, moved back to the United States later, married a man um, a little bit later in life, and then he died tragically in an untimely way. And toward the end of her life, um, an interviewer asked her, you know, 
you've been through some incredibly dark periods. You were on a missionary journey and your husband was martyred, uh, literally clubbed and speared to death. You ministered faithfully, and then you finally meet another person that you can love and who can care for you, and he dies an untimely, tragic death as well. And then there have been multiple other tragedies in your life. How have you sustained yourself? Where have you gone? What wisdom keeps you moving forward? And she said, you know, there were certainly periods in my life where um, worship just felt empty, where sermons didn't feel relevant to the depth of my experience, where the platitudes I got from the church just uh, killed me. She said, in those moments, I just kept repeating to myself the Apostles' Creed. She said, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what would become of me. I didn't know um, what God was doing, but I could say this. I do know that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I don't know how I'm going to survive this experience of pain and darkness and lostness, but I do believe that Jesus Christ is God's only Son and our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to death, and I believe on the third day he rose again. He's ascended into heaven and is seated at right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I don't know what will become of me and my children. I don't know why I'm suffering death after death in my life, but I do know this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. I know these things if I know nothing else right now. And she said it was enough to keep her walking faithfully. And really, that's critical for us as we think about how to face our future, right? Because there are so many things I do not know. There are a lot of things you don't know, but we do know one thing God knows. And that's enough, right? Think about the future that we have for ourselves. Neither candidate is going to perfectly reflect what Scripture says. Both of those, at least from my opinion, have significant problems for me as a Christian. What's our future? Do you know? We don't know. Do I know how we're going to work on this? I have no clue. God knows, and he's in charge. How are we going to serve the millions of people displaced right now as refugees around the world, being bombed out of their homes, facing potential genocide and racial cleansing, moving and hoping for security in a place and welcome and finding nothing? What's the answer for these people, these desperate people? Do you know the answer? Of course you don't. Do I know the answer? Of course I don't. God does know the answer. And it means we can seek him and turn to him. How will we engage, like my friend Brad, in the reality of the racial pain in the world around us, particularly here in the United States? How will we do justice to the fact that this is a complicated issue that goes back to the very founding United States on the one hand and the ways that we seek security and safety for ourselves in the on the other? How do we do justice to the issues faced by police officers who legitimately are in daily fear of their lives in just the day-to-day -day course of their activities and simultaneously the reality of what our black brothers and sisters continue to tell us? Um, they're profiled and targeted in ways that many of us, particularly people who look like me, do not understand. Do you have a solution for that? Do you know the answer? I certainly don't. I believe God does. What can you say to my friend, Christy, in a hard marriage, only 12 years into it and looking at another 40 because they're both reasonably young? 
Do you have an answer for her marital difficulties? Because they've tried counseling. They've been in prayer. I don't have an answer. God has an answer, though, and God knows. The challenge, of course, is this. You may not know. I certainly don't know, and God knows, but God doesn't always want to tell us. Right? Isn't that the problem for most of us? Like, it would be fine if God knew and explained to us how we should solve these problems, but frequently he doesn't. Um, that was the challenge for me as I was trying to decide whether to get married or not, or to have kids or not, or even move to New York City or not 10 years ago. Um, I prayed. I asked my friends to pray about what I should do. I had long conversations. Many people called me spontaneously trying to give me advice about whether I should get married or have kids, right? And all I wanted from God was like, could you just write me a note? <laughs> like, write it on the wall somewhere. You don't even have to say, Greg, my beloved son, like probably Pete experiences God's love. Like, a simple bonehead, this is what I'm trying to tell you, would have been sufficient for me. Silence. Months and months of silence from God. And my wife will tell you it was months and months of silence from me as a result. I was waiting. I didn't know. And here's where I realized why I think God never answered those prayers for me. It would have been easy to do whatever he told me to do. It was much harder to trust him that wherever I went, he would be with me. And that would be enough. Faith is a lot harder for me. Trust is a lot harder for me than just blind obedience. Because then I have to, I'd have to rely on him. I think of my friend Gwyneth, who has cancer. She said, you know, the last couple weeks have been a real up and down period, right? Chemo, like, diagnosis, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, it's going well, it's going poorly, it's all, I'm in a clinical trial, my white blood, she goes, it's been crazy, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride. And one of her really wise friends said, you know, you're right, you are on a total roller coaster ride, so stop fighting it. You're on a roller coaster. Do what you do when you're on a roller coaster. On the ups and downs, throw your hands up in the air and start screaming. And as you throw your hands up in the air, just remember, that's your chance to worship and offer it all up to God. Because in the end, my friend, you have no control over this ride. But you can raise your hands in worship and, um, and release to him. Let go. Enjoy the ride. All of these remind us we are utterly, absolutely, thoroughly dependent on God. Right? When we're weary, what, the, what Augur is reminding us through these Proverbs is, Admit that you don't know how it's going to turn out or what's going to happen or what comes next because all you can know is that God is there and that will be enough. That's why he says every word of God is flawless. Um, it is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you false. God's word is perfect because in the end, when you know that God revealed in scripture, when you hear his voice as you listen in prayer, it's like a shield that protects you from everything around you. All of the forces are arrayed against you. You can hide there and be safe. And he will take care of you. And the beautiful thing about that <clears throat> is that when you're aware of that, you begin to live in a different way. Because remember how Augur begins um, 
this said of Proverbs, surely I'm only a brute and not a man. I don't have human understanding. I have no understanding of who God is, right? He's, he's like, I'm subhuman without this knowledge. But I want to suggest that when you know God and you know how he wants you to live, then you have an opportunity to live incredibly well. When you know who God is and you're, you're following the wise path to live, which is the path that he's designed, you're all of a sudden empowered by the Holy Spirit to work and to witness and to worship in a way that allows you to live as a truly authentic human being. Right? That's why depending on God as we rely on him and acting in wisdom actually leads us to the most authentic human life we could possibly have. The best possible life we could possibly have. Because he designed it this way and he's in control. And we can trust him. <clears throat> I think of my friend Brian, right, who's wrestling with his sexuality and his deep loneliness. And part of what we say to him is the path you're choosing is the authentic human life. It's a full, vibrant, rich human life you've pursued. Even though the rest of our culture would say you're missing out and you're less than human if you don't get to do everything you want to do, we say following Jesus is the most real life possible. And then we as a church end up and should say, and we will be family to you so that as you approach the decades ahead, you will never be alone. Right? When you talk to my friend Brad and you wrestle with the reality of <clears throat> racial tension in the United States, when you think about the important protests that Black Lives Matter and other things and raising these issues to our awareness, right? A secular prophetic call to the church and to our country to engage issues of racial injustice. Part of what we also want to say is, yes, it's important to do that. And what we're going to affirm is that in the end, the most authentic human life is not just about protest or bringing a prophetic message about what's wrong, but it's asserting what should be right. Right? That God designed people of different ethnicities and races to unite around him in harmony, in forgiveness, in grace, in reconciliation, in truth-telling, and in justice. That you can't have justice alone without also introducing the issues of reconciliation, grace, and forgiveness at the same time. Right? That in the end, if I have a critique of Black Lives Matter, for all the good it does, what I want to say is, unlike the civil rights movement of the past, it's missing the prayers and sustaining presence of the Word of God in its primary proclamation. Right? The, the, the incredible power of the civil rights movement was it was fueled by the black church's witness and worship and word. If the church would bring that into the present conversation, so that we were talking both about justice and about grace, about truth and about reconciliation. Imagine how this conversation would change. Because if we do that, we'd be pursuing the authentic human life that God designs for us. In the end, brothers and sisters, to pursue the path of wisdom first requires acknowledging you do not know so that you can trust the God who does know and make yourself completely dependent in acting on that in trust. Augur's practical, though he doesn't just consume us with the big abstract, you rely on God, as critical as that is. He also asks the question, are you willing to be dependent on others? Notice where he goes next. He says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Now, why does he go there? Why go after this big, like, who is God and he's perfect to keep me from lying and falsehood? 
I want to suggest it's because you have to think through, why do we lie? Why do you lie? I mean, I, I trust that you do. <laughs> I do. I think, in the end, we lie because we like being in control. Right? We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to avoid having to apologize. To avoid um, asking for forgiveness. We lie to make ourselves sound better than we actually are. We lie to ourselves, don't we? Because we'd rather lie to ourselves than face the truth and have to change. Think about the lies that we tell all the time, right? Um, lies like, I didn't do it. That starts early with the two or three-year-olds and continues in slightly more sophisticated ways. How are you? I'm fine. My wife and I are doing great. It wasn't my fault. You always do that. Or how about this lie? I can stop anytime. Do you see how these lies work? Aren't they incredibly self-protective? It's not my fault. I'm not responsible. The problem is yours. I'm doing great. Everything about me is great, right? Oh, you're the issue. It's always because you do something first. I could stop anytime I want. I mean, all of those are designed to deceive ourselves or others so that we stay in control of our image, about the way we relate to others, and how we feel. If we told the truth, right, if we avoided lies and falsehood like Agur um, praised to God for, what would happen? If you told the truth and avoided lies, you would need to ask for forgiveness, wouldn't you? If we told the truth, we would have to express our needs to other people. I need a hug right now. I need to be loved right now. I need you to help me because I am not safe with my children right now. Right? If we were to tell the truth to one another, we would be vulnerable. We'd be vulnerable to the reality that others might judge us, that we might get a no, that people might think that we're weak. But more importantly, if you're vulnerable by truth-telling, let me suggest you're also vulnerable to the extension of love to you. You're vulnerable to the reality of community, right? If you were truthful and vulnerable, you would finally be open to the reality that other people are around you and may actually want to serve you, and you would experience the body of Christ in a relevant, powerful, life-changing kind of way. I think it's our lack of truth-telling, our inability to pray like Agur does in this proverb, Lord, keep lies and falsehoods from me, that makes fellowship often so shallow. When I've talked to people who've been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous or other kinds of groups like that, what they often say is, when I compare my experience of Alcoholics Anonymous to my experience of the church, the church often feels so shallow um, and so insipid, it's hard to go back. Philip Yancey is an author, and he talked to one of his friends who had just started AA, and he said, you know, what makes AA so much better than the church for you right now? And he said, you know, I miss the worship, I miss a theology, but um, they're there for me. I can't tell you how many times in the last month at 4 a.m. I've been sitting in a diner writing in a notebook like I'm a punished boy, 
Lord, help me make it just another five minutes. Lord, help me make it just another five minutes. Lord, help me make another five minutes. Knowing that at 10 minutes from now, my sponsor is going to come as I called him. And no matter where he is or what he was doing, he was going to drop everything or wake up and show up at that diner and talk, keep and stay with me until I could get into the next day. He goes, they know how out of control I am and how dangerous I am to myself, and they're going to show up no matter what. It's hard just to eat bagels and drink coffee on a Sunday after something like that. That's why, friends, um, why so many of us are in small groups at this church. It's not because we want to occupy another night of your week. It's not because we need to fill program. It's because we're convinced we actually are dependent on other people for our spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical health. We need people to actually mourn with us when we're feeling broken. We need people to, who can look at us and say, you aren't doing well. I can tell. Let me help you. We need people who months after our loved one has died will come up to us, give us a hug, and say, I still think of him too. Right? That's why we're in small group. That's why we have to have prayer ministry every Sunday because we need places where we can walk up to somebody and go, I'm about to lose it. I'm not sure I can make it. Would you just hold me before the Father right now because I will not get through this without you. If we pursue the path of dependency, it means we're going to pursue the path of avoiding lies so that we can actually be vulnerable to one another. And as scary as that is, wouldn't that be better than being alone and being in control? Finally, Edgar says, you have to depend and be dependent on knowing that God is in control, being in community that cares for you. There's one last area of being dependent that he points out. Give me neither poverty nor riches, he says, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may, be, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. It's interesting how Edgar approaches this, right? The path of wisdom, he says, is not to want too much, because if you have too much, you don't need to rely on God. You can make it on your own, right? And for most of us, our entire world is designed to make sure that we don't have to depend on other people or God, right? You start your 401k early, you start saving, blah, blah. I mean, everything from education to jobs um, to a good family network, that's the goal. And he says, at the same time, I'm not strong enough to be poor, like really poor, because I'm going to break, I'm going to do something in the end to grab control back, even if I have to steal and violate one of your commandments. I know I will do it. So Lord, can you walk me down the middle path of having enough? Not so much that I lack trust, and not so little that I try to take control, but just enough. And he says, give me my daily bread. And this is pretty critical for us. That's what Pete mentioned early, right? Agar asked for daily bread because he realizes, like the Israelites in the wilderness as they're walking through the Sinai and getting manna, they just got enough for today. You pick up enough for tomorrow and it would rot in your basket. But enough for today because if you got enough for today, you were satisfied, but you still had to trust God for tomorrow. And in trusting God for tomorrow, it set you up in a proper relationship with your resources. They are neither all important and controlling you, nor are you so desperate that you'll break a command. I know at least a little about it, though not much. Um, I, as I mentioned, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and so 
Everybody who works for InterVarsity raises support. We have to approach friends, family, churches, and other folk to give to the mission agency so that we get salary and expenses. And if it doesn't come in, um, your salary is dropped until it matches the amount that you raise. And a lot of people are like, oh, you must have so much faith to be able to live like that, because I've been doing this for about 21, 22 years now. And actually, what's weird is I don't think I'm doing this because I have a lot of faith. In fact, I suspect God makes me take a job that requires fundraising because um, he just so desperately needs to show me that everything comes from him and not from myself. Because I was a corporate attorney before this, and it was easy to imagine I'm earning a big salary because I went to school and I did well, blah, 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 blah. And God says, oh, you're so deluded and have so little faith. Um, I'm going to give you a job where literally you're going to depend on people giving to InterVarsity month by month. Your paycheck is going to be directly correlated to what other people do in ways that you cannot control. Right? That's not because I have faith. I think it's I have so little faith, and God goes, I need you to do that to show you that I'm trustworthy, Greg. And I will say, because I've seen him provide for 21 years, when I turn to a student and say, you know that relationship that's really unhealthy? Let it go. You can trust God for somebody who will love you for who you are. I feel like I have a little rubber, the rubber's already met the road for me, right? When I tell the student, um, that habit that's destroying you, you can trust God to accompany you day by day on this. I feel like I have a little bit of integrity, a little skin in the game when I say, yeah, I think God's calling you to go overseas and serve him in a really hard place. He's faithful. I feel like, at least in a small way, I mean, I'll say He's shown himself faithful to me at least 21 years. Will you trust him with the next five of yours? That's why as a church we pursue these kind of spiritual disciplines that keep us dependent, right? It's why we take Sabbath, which reminds us you can't control your future or your productivity. Let it go and trust God to provide for you. It's why, um, as Pete mentioned, we take an offering. And we're the only church I know that ever— that every Sunday has a small mini-sermon about giving. You've probably noticed that. Why? Because money and the security provides such an idolatry for our country and for people who live in New York. It's important every week to be reminded, um, we're inviting you to be generous until your own lifestyle is compromised, just so that you remind yourself it all comes from God. Right? It's why we take communion um, once a month, but then offer it every week, because all of us need the reminder, I can't make it alone. I need more. I need daily bread. Let me end this way. It's fascinating to me that um, Agar's proverb asks for daily bread because it reminds me of the prayer that the church has prayed for 2,000 years that many of us who pray the daily office pray multiple times a day, right? The Lord's prayer grounds us in this reality that Agar talks about. It starts, as you look at it, with a reminder, God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and his will is being done. I can trust and to be dependent on that. It reminds us that we can ask for daily bread and forgiveness, and he's going to provide it. I can trust and be dependent on that. It reminds us that we're part of a community that we're going to have to forgive even as we receive forgiveness. I can choose to be dependent on that as well. So, I'm going to invite us. Let's end this portion of the service. Would you stand with me? Let's recite this prayer of dependence together because it's as much intercession as it is expressing everything we need 
will come from God and the community God has provided. And if we walk in the way of this prayer, and in Proverbs 30, we'll be walking in the way of wisdom that will sustain us in even the hardest of times. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we end our service, we're going to invite you to express your dependence on God. For some of us, it's going to be coming up for prayer. It's going to be allowing yourself to be vulnerable and having a brother or sister in Christ hold you up before the Father. And with as much specificity or as little details, just hold me before God right now. Allow yourself to be dependent on the body of Christ. On this side, you have the chance to remind yourself of your dependence on Christ's body broken for you and his blood shed for you. You're welcome to come and take communion. Somebody would love to offer it to you to remind you, God has accomplished everything necessary. And so we can walk in his grace. For the rest of us, I want to invite us, hold your hands out as an expression of your dependence before God and allow me to pray for us. Brothers and sisters, we come before the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And with our open hands, we express our deep need for him, for his mercy, his grace, and demonstration of power in our life. With all the fears and anxieties that drive us, the brokenness of the world around us, we offer these to you, Lord, because we recognize you are the only one in the whole of the universe who could bear these burdens. And so we offer them to you, and then with empty hands, we pray, fill us with your spirit and your person and your presence and your power, so that as a community, we would offer love and hope, mercy and truth to one another and to the broken and hurting world around us, in the hope that one day, the whole world will stand and bow before you and name the name that is above every name, with joy and wonder, hope and pleasure. Jesus, we give ourselves to you and ask that you would fill us through your spirit to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed Sabbath, everyone.